Philippians chapter 3, we will be reading verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. As you are turning there, just want to extend a warm welcome to all of our guests that we have here, all of those guests who are watching online as well. We are glad you're here with us. Uh, stick around for services, let us get to know you, and you get to know us just a bit better. We continue our series through the book of Philippians, Empowered to Rejoice, How God Gives Us Joy Even in the Midst of Suffering. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. The Bible says, Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We are the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks, anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain, to the, uh, attain the resurrection from the dead. Let us pray. This righteousness that the Apostle Paul writes about, Father, is the righteousness that we seek as well. Not our own law righteousness, but righteousness that is from You through Christ Jesus our Lord. Help us to see it clearly. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the background of this text, the words of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Sermon preached from our Lord and that's recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But specifically, verses 17 through 20 of Matthew chapter 5 is what is foundational and, and background for Philippians 3, where Jesus says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is this righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees? 
How could we possibly surpass that kind of righteousness? And then to compound the fact, we read here the words of one who asked the law was himself a Pharisee. So Paul needs a righteousness that surpasses even his own righteousness, which by his admission, he was, as to righteousness from the law, blameless. Where are we going to get this kind of righteousness? It is the one who first spoke those words in Matthew chapter 5, who would be the one who supplies us the righteousness that we need. You know, there is a temptation for many people, and perhaps not even not a few Christians, to depend upon, to trust in their own efforts. That's a very real temptation. To depend upon our own righteous deeds and righteous acts, our own righteousness. For many people, that's what it means to be spiritual or religious or even Christian. But Christianity is the belief that God in Christ has done what we never could do. God in Christ has accomplished real, genuine salvation, redemption, and also has provided for us, given to us, a righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Indeed, it is the very righteousness of Christ. See, God's righteousness through Christ upon the Christian, that is the cause of joy. That is the source of joy. And here in Philippians 3, verses 1-11, through 11, Paul explains how nothing compares to Christ and to the righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ Jesus. He begins in verse 1 talking about how knowing Christ, it brings that, that joy. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now finally, indicates he's, he's wrapping things up. He does have a full two chapters left to go, but he is winding things down. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And, and that phrase, in the Lord, indicates that this joy that Paul has in mind here is the joy that comes from knowing Christ. It is only in the Lord that we can have this kind of joy, that we can even fulfill the command, and it is a command, to rejoice. Such a command is only fulfilled in the Lord. That is, the Christian in Christ, and Christ in the Christian, which is the hope of glory. And Paul says, you know, to, to repeat myself, to write the same things, you know, on the one hand, it uh, doesn't bother me. And, and on the other hand, for you guys, it, it delivers you from danger. It keeps you safe. And so this business of being in the Lord and, and rejoicing in the Lord, it reminds me of a, of a story about a, a young Chinese convert. His, name, his given name was Lo. And he was reading the Bible one day. He got very excited when he came across Matthew 28 and verse 20. You know what it says. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so here's this newborn babe in Christ. And, and he was all aglow because he took that word there, lo, to be to him personally addressed. He went to the missionary. He said, look, missionary, it says, lo, I'm with you always. And we do. We, we read the words of Scripture and 
like this young Christian, we need to recognize that we too are in the Lord. And since we are in the Lord, He is always with us. And since Christ is with us, and we are in Him, that's source for joy. That's cause for joy. No wonder Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. It's the joy that comes from knowing Him. Knowing that we are part of the family of God. Knowing that we ourselves are children of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has for us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Yeah, rejoice, brothers and sisters. And look, while we are to be joyful in the Lord, there is cause for concern, and that's what Paul turns his attention to next in verses 2 through 4. He talks about these false teachers. But see, even in this, we can recognize that when we know Christ, we can identify the counterfeit. We can spot the false thing when we know Christ. And so Paul uses three different terms, different phrases, to describe these false teachers. He says, look out for the dogs, verse 2. Dogs is the first one. Look out for the evildoers. Evildoers is the second one. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, flesh mutilators. That's the third term, the third phrase that Paul uses here. Watch out! Look out! For these dogs, that was actually a derogatory term that Jewish people would use for Gentiles, those who were outside of the covenant. And now, in a stunning plot twist, the tables have been turned. And, and here's Paul, a Jewish man, pointing to these Jewish false teachers. The big word for them is Judaizers. They were ones who were demanding certain things in the law would be required upon Christians in order to truly be Christians. And Paul says, actually, they're the dogs. They're the dogs outside the covenant. They're also evildoers. Evildoers because they're opposed to the gospel, trying to mix into it things that, that don't belong in there. He's going to highlight circumcision here in a moment. That seems to be a big one. That was a big one in their day. And then finally, they are mutilators of the flesh, and that's hyperbole to describe these Judaizers who... Again, we're demanding circumcision be part of the faith, that if you would be saved, you must be circumcised as well. But Paul turns this around in verse 3. He says, we, we're the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. We put no confidence in the flesh. And that confidence in the flesh, again, specifically tied to the circumcision that was being insisted upon for salvation. That was the confidence in the flesh that these Jewish false teachers were banking on. It was their trust in their own ability to keep the law. But such confidence in anything other than the full and completed work of Christ is a counterfeit. It's a false hope. And that is what Paul is reasoning here. He says, look, I, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. And if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, just look at my track record. He's going to unpack that for us in verses 5 and following. We'll look at that more in just a moment. But what he is getting at here, what Paul is stressing, is that these false teachers, they glory in their flesh. Later on in chapter 3, he's going to say, their God is their belly. And they glory in their own flesh rather than glorying in Christ Jesus. That's what he talks there in the middle of verse 3. Glory in Christ Jesus. Christ is the only grounds 
for our rejoicing. He's the only grounds for our confidence. Reminds me of the story about, uh, the, the man's name was Signor Dorando. He was the, he was an Italian man, he was the Italian champion, and he was sent to run the marathon at Olympia in 1908. He was a full two laps ahead of the next competitor behind him. He was just 30 yards away from the finish line when, as happens sometimes when people run over 26 miles, uh, his, his body gave out. He, he collapsed. He began to regain consciousness. A crowd had run to him, was, had gathered around him, and was shouting, urging, yelling him to, to get up. And he finally got back to his feet, regained his feet, and, I mean, he'd just gone unconscious, and he was a little woozy from that, and so he kind of, you know, kind of staggered a little bit. There was a very ardent supporter of Dorando, and this, this man, he just, he put his hand out, just put it on Dorando's back, no pressure, and it was just to steady him. But immediately, the judges called off Dorando's race and said, no, he... He's disqualified because of that, that little touch there on the back. And that's illustrative of the fact that Christ needs no help. The Lord Jesus Christ does not need a, a hand on the back steadying Him. He is the one who completed, accomplished the work entirely on our behalf. And so we don't need to add anything to Christ. There's no need to add any, because adding anything to Christ would be too much. Christ plus anything else equals too much. That's your equation. Christ and only Christ must be our constant focus and our constant confidence. The all-glorious, divine Son of God. He brooks no counterfeits. And we need nothing more. To depend on anything else other than Christ is a rejection of Christ's work. To depend upon anything else because I just need to add a little bit more to what Christ did is a rejection of the completed work of Christ. This is what Paul is saying here. Any confidence in the flesh. And again, he had full reason for confidence in the flesh. Let's look at it more closely. Beginning in verse 5, he begins to unpack his life before Christ. And he's essentially saying, if anyone, if anyone could say to God, you owe me heaven, it was me. He lists his credentials here. They're substantial. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was typical for all Jewish boys. It was demanded under the law. Leviticus 12 and verse 3. He was a child of the covenant because his parents were living in conformity to the law. But more than that, he was of the people of Israel. And, and the word that Paul uses here for people, we actually get English words like genes and genetics and things like that. And so Paul is saying, I'm no proselyte. I am genetically of Israel. More than that, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. And not only that, he, Paul, who formerly was Saul of Tarsus, he actually shares his name with the first king of Israel who was from Guess which tribe? Benjamin, ding, 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 right? 
Saul, King Saul, and Saul of Tarsus. Look, he's, he's making the connections here of his heritage, his pedigree. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as one writer put it. The Hebrew son of Hebrew parents. He would have been raised on the ancient languages. Hebrew and Aramaic, that was a true sign of faithfulness. And asked the, asked the law a Pharisee. When it came to Torah, no one, no one could match Paul because he belonged to the strictest sect of the Jewish people. He goes on, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous for the law. And he was so eager to protect the Jewish religion from this new sect that arose in the midst of it that he was even seeking to persecute the church with the aim of extinguishing it from the face of the planet. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. No one, no human could bring a charge against Paul. He was impeccable when it came to his keeping of the law, his obedience, his conformity to it. No human could bring a charge, but guess what? And Paul knows this. Yeah, no human, no human could, but God could. Paul elsewhere will talk about how he too lived under the curse of the law. That no one could keep it perfect, and that was including him. And so while no human could bring a charge, there was always the sneaking suspicion in the back of every good Jewish person's mind. I've blown it. I've dropped it somewhere. And so here is Paul. If anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it was Saul of Tarsus. And these seven reasons that he gives, again, a substantial list, an impressive list, these were reasons why he could boast in the flesh. But notice verse 7, but whatever gains, it is plural in the original, whatever gains I had, and he had gains for days, whatever gains I had, Paul says, I counted or regarded and in fact, the force of this, you really need to feel it. It's what's called a perfect tense in the original language, which points to past completed action with present continuing results. He says, look, I, I, there, at, when I became a Christian, I counted, I regarded it all as loss, and I continue to count it all as loss. Why? Why, Paul? One word, Jesus. All because of Jesus. For the sake of Christ. He says, all those gains, it's one giant loss. And it's all for Jesus' sake. You see, confidence in any outward things will keep a soul from Christ. Paul understood this. Any confidence in any external outward things will keep any soul, yours and mine included, from Christ. I began to wonder, what, what would this sound like today for us Christians? Who, we don't have the, the Jewish pedigree and background and all that what would it sound like for us well maybe it would sound something like i am a christian of christians a christian child of christian parents in fact my christian pedigree goes back three four generations i'm a member of a particular church of christ don't believe me just read the sign out front church of christ as to my knowledge of Church of Christ doctrine, I read all of the important magazines and publications of the Brotherhood. I was baptized on a Sunday. And when it comes to attendance, I'm flawless. 
I'm here every time the doors are open. Maybe that's what it would sound like. What confidence in the flesh, even for a Christian today, would sound like. You know, we may not have tribes and things like that, but we still can have confidence in the flesh issues. And what Paul is saying here, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what it's about. Listen, hear me on this. I am not disparaging anyone's Christian heritage. I love Christ's church. And regardless of what day you were baptized, I'm baptism an important thing. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're watching online. All of these things are important. But if we are trying to depend upon those things in order to think that God now suddenly owes me salvation and heaven, we've missed the boat. Because it's all about Christ. There is, we cannot do enough righteous good deeds to somehow merit God's grace and righteousness and salvation and all the rest. That's what Paul is pointing to, the completed work of Christ and the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Any and every possible thing that somehow might be conceived as, as a merit or some kind of advantage when it came to the things of God, they're of no value when compared to Christ and what Christ has done on our behalf. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And by the way, knowing here, it's more than just knowing about Christ. It's actually connected to heart knowledge based on experience. Do you really know him? I don't mean do you know about him. You can quote a hundred different Bible verses and you know all the various facts about the gospel. Do you really, truly know Jesus Christ? Again, it's more than just head knowledge. And Paul says, you know, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Your translation may say garbage or dung in the original scubula. It even sounds bad, right? Forgive the language, but it's all crap. That's the force of this. It's just, it's, it's, it's garbage. I, I, I don't want that. Why? All I want is Jesus, and he is more than enough. That's the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, and your Lord as well. It's not only his Jewish heritage and all these things, but anything that he might claim as valuable religiously, he considers it all just one stinking mess. Oh, why this strong renunciation? It's because the purpose of this strong renunciation is Paul understands what it means when you know Christ. To lose all means to gain Christ. And he goes on in verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Literally, not having my own law righteousness. Not, again, notice, my own. Mine. Is that what it's about? Is that what you're about? My righteousness? God forbid. Not having my own law righteousness, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And what's very interesting, he's talking about the righteousness that comes through 
my, my, my Bible says faith in Christ, but literally what Paul wrote here is faith of Christ. That, it's, that even when it comes to my own faithfulness, I'm not faithful enough. But Christ is. Christ was. Christ continues to be and ever will be faithful. And so through faith, the faith of Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This kind of righteousness is not derived from the bootstrap method of self-effort and commandment keeping. This kind of righteousness can only be ours through Christ. Paul recognizes this. Galatians 2 and verse 16, uh, it is this kind of law-keeping and, and bootstrap method, it, it actually condemns because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Even though Paul was blameless under the law, he just talked about that. He's still under the curse of the law. He knows this. He wrote Galatians 3 and verse 10. Everyone's under it because nobody can keep the law perfectly. Yeah, not having my own law righteousness, but, and this is it's a sharp contrast, it's the strongest contrast he could use, but that, that righteousness, that comes through faith of Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Not my righteousness, God's righteousness through faith, even the faith of Christ. Paul speaks here of having that righteousness, not having, it's a present tense thing, the present reality. I don't have my own, I have the righteousness of God, His own righteousness, it's present possession. And again, while He possesses it, He recognizes it's not His own, He got it from God. And that's the only thing that can give us hope for the resurrection. Verses 10 and 11, he talks about uh, that I may know him. So the first thing, to know Christ, he circles back to that. That's, that's to experience the righteousness of God through Christ and through faith in Christ. But then not only know him, but also the power of his resurrection. The same power that was at work in the resurrection of Jesus is the same power that's at work to raise us to spiritual life, and the same power at work in giving us the righteousness that comes from God. And may share in His sufferings. To share here is to fellowship. That's the idea here of the word, the fellowship in His sufferings. Paul and the other apostles, we see this in the book of Acts, they, they counted it all joy when they got to suffer persecution for the name. And so to share in his sufferings, absolutely. Becoming like him in his death. And this is, this is the ongoing and continual conforming, being conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, it's not only just a present tense thing, but it's also what's called a pass, it's passive in voice. That is, this is what God is doing to us. That he is the one who is conforming us more and more on a day-by-day -day basis to look more and more like Christ. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's the end of the journey. That one day, all of the dead will rise. And there will be a, a judgment of the living and the dead. 
And that's the hope of the resurrection, is knowing Christ, knowing His power, and sharing in His sufferings. Having the righteousness that comes from God through Christ, that is, again, the hope of the resurrection. We know that when it comes to doing that which is pleasing to God, keeping the law, we know we have fallen short countless ways, countless times. We know that our faithfulness is incomplete. It is lacking. It is insufficient. It's faulty. And so too is our righteousness. This is what Jesus knew when he talked about Having a, a, you need a, a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Lord, where can I get it? And the very one who says it is the one who can give it to us. The one who went out and got it for us through his active obedience in life and his obedience even to the point of death on the cross. Through his life, through his death, Christ is the one who brings us his complete, perfect, nothing lacking righteousness and you need by the way both christ's active obedience in his life of obedience to the father as well as his passive obedience in his death on the cross his obedience on the cross in death wipes out the the record of transgressions against us And it gets us to where Adam was before the fall, but it doesn't give us the full righteousness that we need through the active life of Christ. And it's that righteous life that is given to us. Much more will we be saved by His life, Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And so His life attains the righteousness we can't achieve living life as on our own. But having His righteousness... Having a righteousness that is not our own, Paul acknowledges that's a source of joy. Real, genuine joy in the faith. And it is a prize worth losing everything in this life for. I may know Him, that I might have His righteousness. Let's commit this to prayer. That's what we want, Father is to to know Christ and to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. To recognize that it is not our own righteousness, but it is Christ's righteousness, even your righteousness that is ours through faith. We pray, Lord God, that we would recognize the joy that that brings that it is a prize worth losing everything over so that we might gain Christ. And so we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.